0: Accutron Watches present From New York City, this is the Accutron Show A time travel through American culture With your hosts, Bill McCuddy, Scott Alexander, and David Graver Visit AccutronWatch.com And discover the brand that has made American history With an all-new, proprietary, next-generation electrostatic energy movement Accutron It's not a timepiece, it's a conversation piece
1: Innovation is a very flexible thing, and not everyone see innovation the same way. Uh, For me, innovation is the evolution of tradition. The voice you just heard at the
2: top of the show was today's guest, Daniel Balut. He's a legendary chef and one of America's leading culinary authorities. But first, me, Bill McCuddy, who only knows how to eat food, not how to prepare it, along with culture writer Scott Alexander and editor David Graver. We are talking innovation right here at the table with one of the greats on the Accutron Show right
0: after this. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our iconic Space View 2020 collection, recreating the stunning visual impact of the original open dial design combined with an all new electrostatic energy movement. Time just changed again. The Accutron Space View 2020.
2: Join us in celebrating Accutron's birthday. On October twenty fifth, the iconic Empire State Building will illuminate an Accutron's signature green hue. Don't miss out in seeing the view. Well, I gotta say, I'm hungry and I'm in awe, and I have absolutely no questions for this guest today because <laughs> no I questions. don't know anything about Great French cuisine, but uh, Daniel Ballou does, and he joins us in a few moments. I've have been looking forward to this
3: any? all week. Yeah, I have eaten at his restaurants, but more importantly, like I love listening to him talk about food, and I think, I assume we're going to get to do some of that, but his, <laughs> his uh, approach to cooking has really influenced what I do uh, in the kitchen, just to focus on first principles and some simplicity. Yeah, well, and I know you've
4: been there. Remarkably, my last meal before... The lockdown across New York City it was at his flagship, Daniel, and it was one of the best meals of my entire life. I cannot wait to tell him this. <laughs> <laughs> Eating at a Daniel Blue restaurant is something special because yeah. it is a mix of tradition and innovation. He's a pioneering figure with restaurants all over the world.
3: How do
2: you innovate food? I mean, a Bernays sauce is a Bernays sauce. A Hollandaise well, is a Hollandaise. There's your, I mean, there's
3: your hidebound French cuisine, but then like uh, DB Moderne, the bistro, right. um. That place is great. And it's a lunch joint. You can go in there and get, you know, a $20 burger, but like it's got foie gras on it. And it's like, and like a foie gras burger, you know, you could call that. It, it's definitely innovation, and it's delicious. If it wasn't delicious going down, you'd be like, oh, "Okay, this is just showing off." But it's like it's amazing.
2: It also sounds like it should come with a defibrillator. But uh, <laughs> we'll ask him about that. I know he's also working on, on a, a concept involving robotics in restaurants. So that's intriguing and obviously innovative. And uh, I just want to know what the what the one thing everyone should be able to make is in the kitchen. The is robots don't one get
3: thing... scared enough when you yell at them. Is the <laughs> So you had a great meal
2: at Danielle, and you had an amazing burger at the Bistro. Amazing. And I've not yet been to either one. But I think the three of us are going to get to go to... La Pivillon, which is the uh, new incarnation that's coming. Yes, I'm to very us. excited. Yes. Uh, and it's it's sort of interesting that it ties into Accutron in this way. How, Bill? I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> the, there was a La Pivillon, I guess, in the 1930s. Yeah, a, a 39, the, for the World's here, Fair, I think. Here in New York. And then uh, da- I think he will tell us that that name. Sort of went away in the After 1960s. ushering in
4: fine dining in New York City. And, and now he's bringing it back. And
2: speaking of things that went away in the 60s and came back, we are obviously the Accutron show. And uh, we are taking the opportunity with The Chef to launch the first of four very special podcasts. So these are like the, the bonus extras, the DVD, the special edition, uh, because they're built around uh, the four pillars of the Accutron brand. Do you know those?
4: Yes, design. Yeah. Yes. Design, indeed. Uh-huh. History. Uh-huh. No looking at your notes. The other <laughs> Space two. Space yes.
2: and innovation. Right. Well. Right to the head of the class, boys. Um, <laughs> yeah, the the idea that uh, he's an innovative chef is one of the reasons he's on today, along with telling us all about French cooking and making me feel like I don't know anything in the kitchen. Uh, but in the future, uh, the, the relationship with space, the fact that the brand has been to uh, up in the, on the moon everywhere, uh, the history as we go back and, and look at the 60s and how it's relaunched now, Uh, And then, as you said, the design that's so iconic still today. Uh, So all of that happening in one, it seems almost like too much podcast. But but it's going (laughs) to happen when we set the table with the great Daniel Balud, right after this.
0: This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our Accutron DNA collection, reimagined for a new generation. The Accutron DNA combines breakthrough technology, precise engineering, and modern aesthetics to achieve a new level of technical excellence. The Accutron DNA, the new face of time for those who blaze new trails.
2: Chef, welcome to the Accutron show.
1: Merci. (laughs) What
2: was for breakfast today? What'd you make?
1: Well, my wife always do breakfast at home. And uh, actually, I had to jump in the south of France for the weekend so I crashed in last night, and I decided to drive to the country where my kid was, my wife, and so this morning I had a quick breakfast with them. Oatmeal, blueberry oatmeal <laughs> with peach, and a five and a half minute egg, which is neither hard, neither soft, too much, but soft <laughs> enough that uh, you have all the pleasure of, the, uh, of peeling it and, and eat it by hand. Are you hard to cook for? No, I'm very easy. As long as you season well, <laughs> you roast well, or you—I uh, mean, as long as 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 long as the basic simple things are done right. <laughs> what is the most basic simple thing for someone to get right in the kitchen? It don't matter if you do a pasta. It don't matter if you just do a salad, a dressing. You know, it's all this balance of vinegar and oil and mm-hmm. salt and pepper and you know some flavor like. I'm French, so I like my mustard in my vinaigrette. Mm-hmm. But the one with us the best one is my grandmother. She's not there anymore, but she left definitely the recipe behind. Mm. <laughs> and I still crush my garlic with salt and put some mustard and add some homemade red wine vinegar and and some oli- and and some oil. So I use olive oil, but in the old days in the farm where I grew up, uh, we had our own walnut oil, or okay. our own uh, rapeseed oil, or uh, we always had a cycle of oil we would do during the year. So,
4: Is there a system then, or, or a code, that if people just understood would make them better in the kitchen?
1: Yeah, it's um, if there is a code, of course, there is, uh, there is a code. It's first, you have to plan. Uh, plan ahead, you and it all starts with what you buy and have the right proportion of that. And plan ahead because some meals can be deadly simple, but they take three days to prepare, you know from uh, if yes. you're gonna need to cure something before, if you're gonna need to uh, marinate something before. Uh, so you know like a cocoa van, it's a very simple, rustic peasant bistro dish. But a cocovan could take three days. Uh, you marinate the chicken with red wines, and you, uh, you. So the process is almost like a three-step process. Remarkably, I for made 48 48 hours? one. Wait, well, we have so many questions.
4: <laughs> Remarkably, I made a cocovan at the start of the pandemic. It was one of the first dishes I tried to make for myself. I marinated the chicken three days in advance.
1: Yeah, it was good. It
4: was a remarkable experience, yeah, but, but that there are many things moving at the same time.
1: <laughs> right. It's true, but sometimes you can save time and marinate the chicken half the time by reducing the wine first before you put it in a marinade. So mm-hmm. you reduce the wine by half, then you marinate your chicken. And I think the concentration of tannin and and wine is there, so you don't have to leave it so long.
4: French cuisine is often thought of as very traditional, but... Your portfolio of restaurants is predicated on innovation and moving things forward. How did you strike this balance of traditional and innovation?
1: Well, that's what motivate me, I think, is to always think of a new interpretation, a new rendition sometime of a dish, or, or, or looking at creating a, a new dish who has a foundation. And the foundation for me is French cuisine often, it's not always the case, but uh, often. and uh, But the season, the market, has a lot to do with it. And so, I'm not in the south of France here in New York, and there's a lot of things we can compare with the south of France, and there's a lot of things we should not try to compare. And, uh, Cause but- Because they just
2: won't let you, <laughs> outside of France, change certain things, correct? Yeah,
1: well, going to the, to the farmers' market in Nice or in Cannes, I think has different vibes that may be going to the farmer's market here or to get you know, uh, the seasonality of things. here. Yeah, I think the, it's like California today. The, the California market, you cannot compare them with anywhere in the country. Uh, it's the best farmer's market there is uh, in America. I think they are in California. For us, they are the most amazing, but in the shorter season. Right. So, so you work in a lot of restaurants in Las Vegas. And when I think of that, what do
3: you do when you're in the middle of the desert? I mean, yeah, you're, not, that you're not You trust a- your
1: suppliers. And <laughs> right. Yeah, no, you can bring the best to you. So, I mean, I'm in Singapore where, I mean, you wouldn't be able to grow Tarragon there. Uh, mm. and, uh, and we get things from Australia, New Zealand, Europe, Asia, America. We got it from everywhere. And it comes very fresh. It's a very good system. I remember once... Uh, a Japanese gentleman at a restaurant in the south on the Bay, in the south of Tokyo. Uh, and he had a sushi restaurant. And he came to eat at Danielle, And he came with a very good customer of mine and a friend, Japanese. And he said, you know, next time I come to New York, I want to cook for you. Ah. So I said, that's very nice. Thank you. And so two three years later, he came back. So he left his home at 3 o'clock in the morning. He drove to Tokyo, arrived at Skiji Market around 5 uh, in Tokyo, filled up three huge boxes of seafood and fish, went to the airport, and at noon left Tokyo that day, the same (coughs) day, arrived here in New York the same day at the same time. He arrived around noon in New York. He did all his mise en place uh, preparation. He came with his daughter, And at night I invited 16 of the most, I mean, my good friend in New York, top chefs and uh, other friends, 16 people. We had a U table in our private room and a big sort of stage table for him. And for three hours, he gave us a feast, which was not even 24 hours old, (laughs) Uh, from the market uh, uh, to the plate. Was (laughs) that the best meal you've ever had? It was the most memorable. Yeah, one (laughs) of the many memorable ones. And I think to me, it showed that, uh, that when there is a, a way to be able to uh, personalize to f- it or bring it to, to, to yeah to carry an ingredient and to bring it to you, it's a,
2: I, that's a mind-blowing story. Yeah, I mean, it was
1: it was it was so incredible, and uh, I will have to look at the list of chefs who were there <laughs> to remember who to ask about. I'm definition. sure they tell the story all the time. But,
3: uh, it's a funny distinction that that happened there. David asked, you know, what was the was that the best meal? He said it was. The most memorable. And I'm wondering yes. if you could say, like, is is the the memorability, uh, memorab-
1: that piece of it, the most
3: important thing for you? Whether yeah, it's no. It, it or it's was, one ingredient. It definitely. was
1: definitely, but, you know, the best meal is very uh, hard to judge that. And uh, mm-hmm. there's too many best meals right. uh, in life. But uh, are they, um, and many are memorable. Uh, I think to me, a memorable meal is a memorable memorable moment with mm-hmm. friends and there is this communion who create a memorable meal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can have an incredible dinner, technically perfectly executed and all that, but um, was it memorable in the sense that it was a real communion between yourself, your friends, the food, the, the character who made it and and the moment and 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 also the surprise I think of it which Mm. we had no idea what to expect right and it kept coming in a very delicious and sometime um, organic way and and uh, I didn't know the cooking of that chef either so I had no preconceived idea of what he was gonna do.
3: I mean sometimes feels like food is the platform on which you build Mm-hmm. community or friendship or a communion as you said that it's Very much. It, the people are maybe more important than the
1: dishes at some point well that's uh, that's why we stay 6 hours at the table in france because <laughs> right <laughs> we get that we, wrong here don't we, we are you are we eat for 3 and we talk for 6 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: why don't we do that more in this country
1: that is the same all over uh, Well, we do we do depends uh, <laughs> well, <as if> you <laughs> no, you're trying to turn those tables at least twice aren't you in the uh, uh, evening no no absolutely those experience in the restaurant sometimes is a little bit different But I remember, I mean, I'm not too old, but I had to celebrate my 50th birthday. And uh, I am the co president of City Mill on Wheel. And every year I do a gala at Danielle to raise money for City Mills. And it's always the first week of March and the first Sunday of March. And I auctioned a dinner for 12 people with Robert Parker at the time. Mm. It was like Hmm. It was uh, a while ago. I mean, more than 10 years ago. <laughs> and uh, with the Robert wine, Parker, oh, we bringing the wine. the wine of right. Robert Parker and also having uh, Robert Parker in attendance. So, of course, the guest bought the dinner. Boom, boom, boom. He went for $35,000. And actually, the guest who bought the dinner is a big wine collector. Is a, is a very good customer, a very good friend. And he said, Danielle. I want this dinner to be your birthday party so you can invite 12 more friends. I'm going to invite my 12 friends because I pay for it. <laughs> but you can have invite 12 more friends and you can cook your heart out. Uh, and I said, thank you, thank you. And he said, and the wine, we'll tell Bob Parker to bring one course f- of wine. The rest, I'm bringing the wine. Oh. And he brought wine from eighteen eighty or 1882, (laughs) to wine until the early 90s, but very small 90s, a lot of, of my birth year, 55, and then a lot of wine of 1921, 45. And they were mostly magnum or double magnum. So we were about 24, 25 people at the end. We drank about 80 bottles of wine. We stayed about seven <laughs> hours at the table. Oh, wow. So we did well, you know what I mean? But the wine was old, so it didn't hurt, you know? With no headache at the end of the night.
2: Another memorable moment.
1: And what I ask is all the chefs and sous chef and previous chef who worked for me uh, in New York to prepare one dish, one majestic dish for 24 people. And everyone played a game and we had a parade of amazing dish uh parried the through the dining room over those six, seven hours of, of lunch. I, lunch.
4: I have to because you introduced it, I have to quickly say something about a very memorable meal that I had. In March of 2020, right before we went into lockdown, I attended Sunday Supper at ah. Daniel on a night where you raised one million dollars for your charity. Thank you. And it was one of the most spectacular evenings of my life, but I was caught off guard by not only the spectacle and the theatricality of it, but the charity component. And you seem to dedicate your life to others in the work that you do.
1: Of course. I mean, I think we restaurants a part of the community, but we're not we don't always give a chance for everyone to be part of it. Uh, some people cannot afford it. Some people cannot come because uh, like, you know, City Milan Wheel to me it's a charity who take care of the elderly in New York, and the elderly were the people before us, mm-hmm. who sometimes I mean I meet when we go on meal delivery, we find the most interesting people. They were dancers, they were singer, they were uh, they were in the medical field, nurses, or or they were just delivery men. Some people work. Closely with restaurants. So I, I met some some chef who was working uh, in restaurants and all that. Uh, you so, went on the deliveries. Yeah, because I created something with City Meal called Chef Deliver. And uh, we are about 50 hundred chefs in New York who, once a month, once a year, you prepare hundreds of meals and you go and deliver them. But because we have a lot of chefs, so every week, so every month, there is this program going and it's really uh it's 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 a wonderful uh it's a wonderful thing and so we encourage the chef to make meals and to go and deliver them
2: that's a surprise when yes. that door opens and it's you
1: and we have l- yeah of course and <laughs> and some of them kind of know where i am and wish they could come to the restaurant but we yeah we we did very well that night and uh and the generosity of our customer i think to me is you know i of course i am proud to support City Mill and I'm proud to help the community of New York, but uh, it's all thanks to our customer. We're so generous and and so willing to help me help City Mill to continue to be strong in this program. And five days later, I had to basically furlough 750 people in New York mm. uh, right after. So it was right in the neck of close, close down in New York. Uh, and we, after that, uh, shut down.
2: We're going to talk about what a difference the pandemic made. We are discussing philanthropy. We're talking about innovation, and we are seated at a very special table right now with Chef uh, Daniel Beloud. We will have more of that conversation, including the beginning. He talked about the difference between cooking at home and cooking in a restaurant. So when was the first time he actually cooked in a restaurant? That will all be on the plate when we return in this edition of the Accutron Show.
0: This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our Legacy Collection. Reviving some of the most memorable Accutron watches from the 60s and 70s, the Legacy Collection combines timeless design with the technical excellence of Swiss watchmaking, each limited to 600 individually numbered pieces. The Accutron Legacy Collection, inspired by the past, built for the future.
2: Our special guest today is Chef Daniel Balloon. He's telling us some of the inside secrets. There's a a mother's... uh, Salad dressing, I'm sure, has one or two ingredients he didn't mention earlier in the show. <laughs> but let's go back a little. I wanna talk, uh, uh, we'll get to the pandemic and how that pivoted. We were talking about that a moment ago, but when, when, when you were a young boy growing up on the farm in France, when did you know you wanted to leave and, and where, what was the first restaurant you
1: cooked in? Mm. Uh, I was 14 years old and I didn't want to go to school and I didn't want to stay at the farm and I was kind of a little bit stubborn maybe with my, uh, the direction of my life. I uh, I didn't mind to continue to go to school, but I wanted to do something. And I never really liked the work as a farmer because it was hard work for my parents. And God bless my parents at 93 today, both of them. They work very hard, but I think they work in a very healthy environment and with a lot of family around and support them and all that. But I had a chance to be in a village where there were a lady, uh, a contessa. Her name was uh, Contessa di Volpi. And she was a very um, flamboyant lady. She was driving, I mean, we are talking like uh, 1969. She was driving a Mustang Convertible with a pool next to her and smoking big cravins <laughs> and <laughs> cigarettes and drinking two bottles of whiskey a day with her friends. And, and she had a racehorse at the racetrack, and she was going gambling to the casino, and, uh, and she was going to eat to all the best restaurants in Lyon all the time. She knew every two-star and three-star and every chef. And when my parents say, we don't know what we're going to do with Danielle, he want to be a chef. I, uh, she said, well, let me find him the best restaurant for him.
4: <laughs> oh, wow. oh wow! And
1: I started an apprenticeship at fourteen, and so I was going to school and apprentice at the same time in a two-star restaurant in Lyon, and I think this defined my career because I loved it from the minute I was there. It was hard work, and it was uh, it was not uh, nobody was kind. <laughs> but uh, but um, I was learning. I was learning. I was fascinating. I was fascinated by chefs like Paul Bocuse and, and the chef I worked for, and all the, this big collective of chefs in uh, Lyon, who at the time were very prominent. And so that was the start. And then always I always asked my chef to help me get my second job, my next job. So I asked him to go to Georges Blanc, a new Swiss star, then Roger Verger, a new Swiss star, then Michel Guérard. So mm. I um, I did my Tour de France. <laughs> and after 11 years of training, I wanted to be a chef.
4: Lyon is one of the most important food capitals in the world. Would you ever have a restaurant there?
1: I have a tiny Uh, investment in a small bistro of a young chef who used to work for me and went back there. So it's called Le Supreme in Lyon. But uh, no, I don't want to have a restaurant there, but I do have a lot of friends who have restaurants and I stay close in touch with them and I always go and visit them religiously because to me it's part of my, you know, it's my path, it's my life to go to Lyon and dine Let's mm-hmm. see, my friend.
4: When you look at your portfolio of restaurants around the world, was that ever part of the dream to have a global presence, to be relevant in so many different places?
1: Mm, maybe because the chef I was working for already, such as chef like influential chef like Paul Bocuse or Roger Verger or Michel Guérard, uh, they were already in New York. They were in Japan. They were in uh, in America. They opened in California. So, I without trying to consciously be like them, I definitely liked the way they were expanding their um, opportunity of bring their cuisine to other places. And when I went to, uh, I went to Denmark, I lived for a year and a half in Denmark because I was sent by my chef Roger Verger of the Moulin Mougins to Denmark. And so right there I understood the concept of of uh, doing consulting and creating menus for others and bringing a team to support it. How do you maintain
4: innovation on a global level with the, in the culinary scene today?
1: Well, innovation is a very flexible thing <laughs> hmm. and not everyone see innovation the same way. Uh, for me, innovation is the evolution of tradition. And that we put innovation on the evolution of tradition because I think I want to make sure when we do a recipe that we have a foundation, and that foundation is traditional flavor, traditional technique, and and maybe uh, uh, a code, sort of, uh, a beginning, uh, having um, a coded recipe. And from that code, we build over and, and that can come just from the base of a sauce and the base of a protein and the sauce together. And what are we going to do around it? Oh, um, like today, I was tasting five new dishes. And uh, of course, we uh, were doing some dishes for lunch that we are soon going to be opening lunch at Le Pavillon. So those dishes was uh, first to make sure that the dish is is. Balanced to be a meal at lunch, uh, something that uh, is not too spicy, that it's it's pleasant, it's comfortable. So we wanted to do something with octopus, and so we had some black olive musto, which is we we dry the black olive and then we create a uh, uh, we 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 rehydrate after, but with also a little bit of olive oil, and we create this sort of dark. It's almost like a tar of black olive, uh, and we have a little bit of that, and we have. Uh, only
2: you could make a tar sound
4: good. <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> because
1: tar is ugly, but this is this is definitely delicious, and um, and then of course with that we had some very uh, we have a farmer who grow us only uh, different papers. He grow like fifty different kind of papers and also tomatoes. And so uh, we have using those papers right now. We are preserving some. We are using some fresh. So that was one of the elements inside. And also some tomatoes because right now until maybe late September, early October, we'll have beautiful toma- local tomato. And then artichokes and uh, and uh, some celery as well. So all this element has a little bit of a Provençal, maybe undertone, but in a very sort of fresh and local uh, application.
2: Another innovation is the cell phone. Do you cringe or are you pleased when someone pulls out and starts taking pictures of the plate that's just arrived at, in front of them?
1: It's okay, it's okay. It's, yeah? It's, it's, we cannot, uh, at the beginning, some chefs were so difficult and set and they don't want these to see any phones. There's a chef in New York who have a famous restaurant, and he basically banned phone. But uh, at the end, he can never really control it all. And some people have a way to snap pictures without (laughs) even him noticing. So it's okay. I think uh, at the end, uh, I love to take pictures myself just to have the memory now uh, and also to be able to share it and to be able to express, you know, How much I like it. If if I don't like something and if I feel it's not good and ugly, I will not talk about it. Uh, I may have taken a picture of it, but I don't care. I'll delete it. But uh, if it's delicious, I want to keep memory of it. And I want to also, uh, you know, in the past you used to take pictures and have your vacation albums and things. So now it's more instant.
3: (laughs) Speaking of phones and technology and and innovation, these things you worked on a, a concept with robot chefs. Mm-hmm. Is that correct?
1: Yes, actually, Spice was born five years ago, five six years ago. It was S P Y C E. S P Y C E. Right. It was in Boston by four young students at MIT, and uh, a little bit earlier in that, uh, Sweet Green was created by four young students from Georgetown. Right. University, uh, so in a in, in the same sort of model, except Sweet Green was based on, on creating wonderful salad with some local farmers and all that. Uh, the um, uh, Spice was more about trying to robotize uh, fast food or fast casual in a way that it could give better service to the guest as well and better consistency and a better price and those four kids were genius and they created this most complex machine with the freshest ingredient and the most also complex dishes where the machine could steam, steam rice or steam pasta or, 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 or seared certain vegetable or meat or or, or put some crunch and fried of things and fresh. And so basically, the last machine they created in Boston, which is in function, it, it, the, the, the containers start on one side and keep passing under serving mm-hmm. things until it get to the end and it has the sauce and it has everything. And the dish were wonderful, healthy, really in tune with the new generation of people want food they can trust and also they want to eat food from people they trust. And uh, I think uh, the four kids at Spice were, did an amazing job, and they just got bought out by Sweet Sweetgreen oh. Oh. Uh, okay. last, uh, so two weeks ago. So I'm still totally involved because I was uh, consulting with them uh, as a, a f- uh, food uh, consultant, but also as an investor as well. And I even convinced Thomas Keller, Gavin Kaysen, and wow. Jerome Bocuse to invest with me also in Spice. So now it's all converting itself to a sweet green stock. So it's good.
3: Does it worry <laughs> you at all to automate those parts of food preparation? Or is it you think that's just No, the I think inevitable? it's
1: not. Uh, I think no, not at all. I mean, in, in kitchen, we strive with technology. We love technology. It brings, of course, innovation. But it, it brings consistency, it brings precision, it brings um, sometimes flavor that uh, you may not be able to control it uh, mm. other. I mean, when, for example, the technology of sous vide came up about. Yeah. So there was science and technology together. And I think that's what we love in the kitchen is when well, explain. Wendy's that's that's a bit the of boiling. And that's technology. the boiling bag that mm-hmm.
2: that uh, yeah. you can put a, a piece of meat in at 130 Vegetable, degrees for foods, like vegetables, fruits. I mean, yeah. so
1: many things: fish, uh, shellfish. Yeah. Do you use that technology, or
2: does it take too long?
1: We, no, no. We use some of it for very specific purpose. Wow. <laughs>
4: Are you looking to other food scenes outside of the major cities for innovation or for inspiration?
1: Of course, I'm. Uh, I'm always thinking, and and that is not always on the fine dining it's because I love casual cooking and I love uh the fast casual aspect of uh the business I love the bistro aspect I mean I have an épicerie bouleau who is also um it's it's kind of a retail of sandwich and salads and coffee and viennoiserie and pastry and that I think uh interests me a lot it's uh I guess fine dining, because you have a lot of support from many people around, and you build very large team in order to produce this excellence. Uh, it's a different business than uh, trying to figure it out, how to bring you the best croissant at the best price, with the best quality of butter, best quality ingredient, and the least payroll, because you want to make sure it has a balance. So you need to buy the right machine to do it. You need to you need basically to bring the right support to your team in order to, ev- to evolve and be productive. Scott's right, though. We,
2: we've spent a lot of time in the last 20 years building up celebrity chefs, and you're certainly one of them. And to take your face off of it and have a robot do it is kind of brave. I mean, uh,
1: no, you won't take your face away from it who so said no. anything about taking my face no no away? well i think if you i had a problem your, with the food and i you just pat your chef robot over. on the back every day and say thanks <laughs> thanks for producing those thousand mil without a sweat right right um, yeah. yeah no but uh i think technology will keep evolving i mean the evolution in our business is constant and it's You know, there's a lot who don't work sometimes, and there's a lot who are very, very good because it definitely helped our industry uh, evolve better. Uh, Now, we'll see the combination of spice and sweet green, where sweet green bought spice in order to bring technology in their uh, store. So it's going to be a combination, but Mm. they believe that they could be more performant And 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 certainly more efficient with uh, support of technology. So it's. Will that still be called Spice, or will will Sweetgreen take that technology? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. exactly.
2: Uh, If we could get on a plane right now and go to only one city in the world, where would it be for the best food, in your opinion?
1: That's um, tough because today there is great chef all over the world. Um, For me. I would like to escape what I know most. I would like to, uh, so for me is to travel to South America, uh, going to Peru, going to Brazil, to Mexico, Brazil. Uh, I love South America. I think going to Asian country that i have not explored, uh, it's, uh, it has a sense of discovery for me, uh, of course. If it's for the best meal in the world, that's different. But that I already had it before. <laughs> <laughs> and on occasion, I do go back, <laughs> and that's always Paris, and that's always Lyon. Well, just give us an address, then I guess we'll settle for but, that. No, but uh, you know, I, uh, as French as I am, I love other cuisine, and it's always a revelation to, to travel to a new country. And I mean, I have a lot of young Korean chefs who work for me. But we asked them to cook French, or we asked them to cook Italian, and and they were excellent. They were they learned, you know, cooking in a in, in America and all that. But then when I did my first trip to Korea, and they dress up a feast for me, I think it was just it was just the most uh, amazing moment where um, I was curious about the ingredient, about technique, about pickling, about. You know, aging uh, things, but uh, uh, it was a cuisine I didn't know.
2: So you can be all, baffled. Yeah. So.
1: Oh, yeah. You, oh, can, yeah, you yeah. can
2: eat something and go, wait a minute, what did I know three of the four things in this, but I haven't, you taught, you <laughs> you go into the
1: kitchen and you start. Absolutely. No, that's. Uh, and
2: that's exciting.
1: And that's the beauty of uh, sometimes being a chef. And someone tried to host you. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: But you've just opened a huge restaurant in Manhattan at a time when most restaurants are going out of business. So that was an incredible challenge after the pandemic. Tell us about the pavilion and what it was about it or what the idea of it was that drew you back into another place.
1: Le pavilion came about four years ago and so that was way pre, pre-pandemic uh, to us and that was an opportunity to partner with one of the finest real estate companies in New York, SL Green who was developing this $3.5 billion building which represents a building the size of uh, the Empire State Building uh, and, um, and they had one restaurant in it and they wanted a fine restaurant but yet a restaurant who could be providing what maybe Midtown was looking for. So we didn't want to be an exclusive destination, but a fine destination. And I think Le Pavillon. That destination,
2: by the way, we should tell people who don't know, is right next to Grand Central Station.
1: Exactly. We're on one Vanderbilt, the name of the building as well. And uh, we're on the second floor. And right below, there's an Epicerie Boulu in the corner of 42nd and Vanderbilt. And we four years ago, I didn't know exactly what I could do, but I liked the people I was uh, engaging myself with. And that was the first time in New York that we were creating a partnership with uh, a developer like that. And, um, and as we worked on the development of the restaurant, first came the design. We needed to decide on the direction, because the building itself has very strong architecture and beautiful architecture. But we needed to create a restaurant in an area of the building, which is the southeast corner of the building, on 42nd. That has a 75-foot window on one side, and a ceiling would drop down to 35 feet on the back. And four huge columns. almost like a cathedral uh, inside the the space. And we had four different designers, and each of them were fighting with the architecture. They were creating something on the inside Mm -hmm. that was trying to hide the issue. And one designer, which I had a lot of admiration for, and that's why I chose him, was Isaiah Weinfeld from Brazil. And he has an amazing way of connecting nature and architecture together. And he just gave us a little sketch instead of a 40 page book, (laughs) he gave us a little sketch of the the direction he wanted to take and how he envisioned the space to be. And so we gave 50% of the space to a garden and Mm -hmm. we have a garden table as well. And all the restaurant is along the window And we created a floating ceiling who has also a different dimension of high as it goes into the dining room. And we created a bar where the highest point of the ceiling is. We created an open bar, uh, a square bar, which is beautiful, and a chandelier where at the beginning they put the light inside the blown glass and they felt that was not the redirection. So now the light is coming from the side and it's just glowing into the the glass itself, and it's really beautiful it, and of course we needed to give a name to that and uh, I give a, a direction to the cuisine so the name I felt that this restaurant was a pavilion to the building it was it was a place where you we will entertain we will celebrate and we and in French le pavillon is uh, the name of a place who is either in a park, in a garden, or in a chateau, and it's the place where you just go to party. Uh-huh. <laughs> and But in New York City, 1939, the World Fair, there was the French Pavilion. And mm-hmm. after that, the staff stayed in New York City, and one of them opened Le Pavillon uh-huh. in New York. And that was the history of French dining in America for 30 years that never left because the name resonated and sort of emulated with so many other French restaurants opening trying to model themselves after Le Pavillon. Le Pavillon closed late 60s, early 70s. And it had the most, I mean it really defined fine dining in America and in New York. And at the time French were ruling Uh, now, you know, even you go to Nobu, it's fine dining <laughs> because it's Japanese and all that. So yeah. it has many different cuisine today in fine dining, many different style. Uh, but uh, to me, the name was synonymous with New York and synonymous with French cuisine and synonymous with sort of the, the balance of background I have and how much I know about the present and how much I know about the past. And so naming this restaurant Le Pavillon, was uh, kind of a natural. It was available. So uh, we're very excited about that. And uh, it has nothing to do with the one we used to exist, but it has a lot to do with, you know, new millennium, new century, uh, new New York revitalization of Midtown. And the innovated La Pavillon. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and, I, and we wanted to kind of created uh, a timeless restaurant as well. Mm. You've that got also... a big
2: picture because I, I just have to point out before Scott asks this question that in that lineup, you go, pandemic happened, we move on. And and I right. have been by, Danielle, and mm-hmm. seen the outdoor seating there, and it's the only one in the city where every little um, booth has its own air conditioning in oh, yes. it. So you, were, uh, you pivoted magnificently during that, and I wonder what the big lessons are going forward out of the pandemic for restaurateurs?
1: I think it's to never lose hope and to certainly rally the team. Uh, we try to really take care of our staff as much as possible. Uh, we opened three restaurants during the pandemic. We opened one in Blantyre at uh, Lenox, Massachusetts. We put a cafe bouleau there. We opened a restaurant in Dubai. We opened a restaurant in the Bahamas giving opportunity to our people uh, everywhere. Uh, we, um, But in New York itself, uh, Le Pavillon came just at the right time because it gave us also a chance to uh, not only uh, focus on our restaurants, but also create something new in a, in a time which was almost impossible to start something new. And uh, But um, I think what I've learned is to never lose hope uh it we had some very challenging time but we were finding every solution possible to it and i was not the only one many chef from you know the to go business to the home delivery to uh the um, gold belly nationwide if you live in texas or oklahoma i can send you a, a box of short ribs uh and and uh okay. and uh, also I mean, the the art of raising money through Zoom and to any form of communication uh, was fantastic. Uh, I created a charity for our staff called Hand in Hand, and we ra- raised hundreds of thousands through generosity of our customer, our suppliers, our sponsor, our partners, but also through the fact that I could do some gig on. Zoom and charge people for it so we could raise money for our team. Bravo. So much
3: of it seems like it, there's a flexibility that you seem to value that, that this, you know, when the pandemic hits, you just, if you're flexible and you're willing to innovate.
1: Um, I know, but I will say that this pandemic was certainly the hardest time I've ever went through because I never had a minute of break because you can't feel like, oh, well, It's the pandemic. Everything is closed. Let's hit the road and go to the beach. No. Uh, I stay tight in New York with my team, and uh, we started with a small team of executives, and then we kept growing and bringing people. And and we never stopped trying to think about what we could do next in order to keep ourselves busy and alive, I would say, because uh, it was important to keep our business alive mm-hmm. these, never i'm sorry
3: in these traditional uh, you know traditional french cooking and, and restaurants it seems that there's an impulse to oh it must be the same it must we have to keep the traditions we have to keep all the stuff and it no. seems like this is the opposite mindset
1: absolutely and and also you know french cooking uh, the beauty of french cooking is that we have the whole spectrum of cooking mm. so it goes from the most simple rustic delicious country cooking to the most sophisticated avant-garde cuisine mm. and I think that uh, and everything in between so when you know sometime you hear oh French cuisine passe or French cuisine you know has been uh, no no there's <laughs> always there's always a label rebouncing somewhere. <laughs> He's right. <laughs> always so the bistro, he's right. so always the gastro, right. so in between, and 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 we have the most creative chef as well, uh, I think, uh, with within one cuisine, I would say. And is there something uh,
3: in the French character that that is so aligned with food? Because I
1: think of other countries, and I can't think of any no, other. No, but so the the thing is with food in France it's not only cooks, it's not only chefs. You have the charcutier, you have the pâtissier, the boulanger, the the, the tripier. Uh, There's so many trades who belong to the food world and who you go to Paris, you may not want to see a chef, but you want to go to your charcutier, you want to go to your pâtissier, you want to go to your boulanger, and you want to go home and uh, to your maraîcher. And all those people connected, Together, it's all—they're all connected around food, and uh, I think that may be what makes the beauty of French food as French mm-hmm. food. Mm-hmm.
2: I think that speaks to everything that we could eat, want to be with, celebrate, and we have had the the very uh, distinct honor of uh, hearing about all of that in one man who is a uh, a walking. Megalopolis, is that a word? (laughs) There's there's so many. How many total kitchens are under your name as we're sitting here right now?
1: Uh, It will be, I think, by the time we reopen everything, uh, it will be, again, 12 or 14. But, uh, you know, from Singapore to Toronto, Montreal, uh, we're looking at uh, L.A., Uh, Palm Beach, Miami, of course.
2: The world's chef is uh, Daniel Balloud, and we have had him at this table for the Accutron
1: Show. Thank you. Thank you very much, gentlemen, and look forward to cook for you. Oh, Oh, we're coming. Can't wait.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Accutron Show. To listen to all of our shows, visit accutronwatch.com. To learn more about the world of Accutron, follow us on Instagram at Accutron Watch and subscribe to our podcast from New York City. Until next time, Accutron time.